This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. Does morality have a role to play in statecraft and foreign policy? Should states' foreign policy decision-making be a function of moral reasoning or do ends justify the means? There has been a great deal of debate in India in the recent past about the moral dilemma in engaging the Taliban in Afghanistan, given its reprehensible moral character and behavior. So are there organizations and individuals in the external environment that states like India should try and not engage given their morally questionable character. Take the case of the Lashkar e Taiba or Jaish e Mohammed. These two terrorist organizations have killed scores of Indian citizens in the past. Should India, hypothetically speaking, engage them in a ceasefire deal, should there be an opportunity? Or would you say that is too reprehensible? Moral questions are not easy to resolve. So I have with me Professor Rajesh Rajakopal to answer some of these complex moral questions relating to foreign policy and statecraft. Rajesh is a professor of international politics at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. He is the author of Fighting Like a Guerrilla, the Indian Army and Counterinsurgency. And second strike arguments about nuclear war in South Asia. So, Professor Rajesh Rajagopalan, welcome back to the National Security Conversation. Thank you, Professor uh, Rajagopalan. Uh, Professor in a recent piece for the for the print, uh, you made the argument that uh, Indo-US relationships should not be burdened with Afghanistan or issues like democracy in India under Modi. Uh, which, in your opinion, would be a diversion from the primary objective, uh, which is Indo-US cooperation to counter China. Is it not a narrow view in some sense of Indo-US relations because democracy is often repeated as a major, uh, you know, uh, part of Indo-US relationship? Uh, or is it uh, merely a rhetoric uh, couching the interest that the two sides uh, have uh, in, the, in the region or abroad? Yeah, I think it is, uh, I would argue that it is more rhetoric than really uh, the central facet of the relationship. Yes, uh, we have repeatedly talked about democracy. Um, and so it is natural that people, when they look at the, the US-India relationship, um, you know, they, they, they focus on the democracy part because both uh, India as well as US, uh, US particularly, but also India, uh, have talked about uh, how these are two democracies and the world's largest and the world's oldest democracy and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, we have done that since uh, uh, from the beginning, but especially over the last, um, since 1998, after 1998, we have been emphasizing that aspect. Uh, so it's only natural that uh, analysts and others focus on that aspect, but I think we need to recognize that despite the fact that uh, the governments talk about uh, democracy, 
that is not the primary reason why uh, US and India have come together. Uh, democracy has very little to do with the with why uh, India and the US are now, uh, you know, their relations are uh, deepening uh, with every passing month. Um, so, I mean, democracy has nothing to do with it because obviously we have been a democracy for well, since 1947. Um, uh, US has been, of course, also been a democracy, but uh, that has never been the reason for uh, our relationship. It is only now that India and the US have uh, come uh, quite close. If you go back to the Cold War period, for example, we were still democracies, but we were on the opposite sides of the of the of the Cold War. I mean, India was, uh, uh, despite the fact that we were democracies, we were not uh, we were not an ally of the United States. We were not even aligned to the United the United States. Forget forget a formal military alliance, but not even in a sense in an informal alliance, uh, informal alignment that did we have with the United States, except for brief periods. Um, in the late 50s or the 60s, uh, when the pandemic had the difficulty in China. So, uh, uh, and you know, even that uh, uh, clearly after 71, uh, that ended entirely. Uh, so, uh, the, the democracy part uh, has not been a factor in much of uh, US India relations. It's only, uh, you know, it's only the, the recent past that uh, India and the US have come to close. And that closeness does not correlate with any, you know, any aspect of the democracy part at all. I mean, so if we were democracies, if democracy was the glue, um, was a reason for us to come together, we should have been allies since 1947 and we haven't. Um, and, you know, uh, both on their side as well as on our side, I think we had other interests that either drove us apart or brought us closer. You know, you argue that it is not prudent for US-India ties to be burdened with the prevention of uh, democratic backs, uh, you know, backsliding under Modi. But for the longest time, India has been seen as a democratic counter to China. So will the erosion of democracy, in your opinion, inside India not undermine its position as a liberal bulwark against the authoritarian China, at least in the domain of ideas in the sort of liberal international order, as it were? Yeah, I think that aspect of uh, democratic India as a counterweight to China, uh, to authoritarian communist China, uh, was something that was a framing that was done by the United States in the 1950s and to some extent the 1960s. But of course, once they uh, had their opening to China after 1971, that framing was, you know, disappeared. And that, you know, that goes back to what we were discussing uh, previously, which was about the importance of democracy, that the, the democracy was not sufficiently important for them as soon as the purpose was served, as soon as they had their opening to um, uh, then India no longer was important. And that framing itself uh, uh, almost entirely disappeared. Uh, now, we haven't in the, even though we have gotten closer over the last uh, decade, decade and a half, uh, we haven't, it hasn't been framed as democracy versus Chinese uh, authoritarianism. Um, uh, it has more been framed uh, as Chinese aggressiveness and you know the need to sort of counter China. The the the, uh, the notion of democracy uh, has come in only in the context of U.S. and India being democracies and that providing some sort of a basis for the relationship, but not in terms of uh, India being a democratic counter to an authoritarian China. So that is you know that I think that element may have a role to play. 
but I don't think that has been it has been framed in that respect, and definitely not not in the sense that it was framed in the 50s and 60s when that was you're right that was a framing, but that disappeared. Uh, that did not have much. Uh, that did not have a much of an impact on India, of course. India did not uh, frame it in that respect. It was the United States that framed it in that respect. And we did not sort of entirely go along with that framing. But even the American framing of that uh, issue changed uh, after 1971, because basically that uh, completely disappeared uh, from their vocabulary also. So uh, so I, and I, I don't think that uh, there is a, there is a, uh, that framing itself, I don't see it very much in evidence today. Uh, the framing is only in terms of the fact that US and India are democracies and therefore, you know, that, uh, that, that provides some sort of a basis, uh, a common basis for our relationship, but not in terms of China per se. But I think, but I think there is an interesting talk about the Quad being a, you know, coming together of democracies, US, India, yeah. Japan, Australia. So, you know, uh, we can, we can show the authoritarian Chinese how democracies can come together and, and beat back authoritarianism and human rights violations. You know, there is, there is that talk. I mean, you know, either it is, a, uh, you know, an argument, uh, argument from hypocrisy, or it means something, but the, the talk is nevertheless there. Yeah, so we have seen some discussion, especially in the early uh, weeks, I wouldn't even say months, but the early weeks of the Biden administration uh, about a democratic alliance and a democracy, uh, you know, uh, some form of a democratic grouping, T10 and so on and so forth. Uh, but that is kind of, they have kind of gone soft on that, uh, essentially because uh, they recognize themselves, I think, that uh, uh, framing it uh, in that manner uh, is problematic, uh, considering that a lot of their, um, uh, you know, potential allies or partners uh, all around Indo-Pacific uh, can't really be included in that group. You know, Vietnam, for example, you know, it's not really uh, Vietnam is an important part of that uh, potential emerging coalition, but it can hardly be characterized in terms of a democracy, and so. So this becomes a little bit of a problem for the United States if they if they go down that path. And so I think we have seen a softening of that uh, of that element of uh, democracy being uh, the glue uh, that holds these countries together. I mean, obviously, countries do talk about democracy. I think I mean, you know, we are, all of us, uh, India, US, Japan, Australia, others um, are all democracies of whatever whatever the internal differences and difficulties that many of these uh, qualities have but you know we are fundamentally democracies and so uh, it is natural that uh, that some of that talk comes up uh, but there is a certain amount of hypocrisy as you said uh, clearly because um, you know India hasn't had any qualms about uh, aligning with all sorts of uh, regimes uh, throughout the Cold War for example we we hardly had any uh, democratic uh, partners or democratic uh, countries that were friendly to us. In fact, most of the democracies uh, uh, around the world, um, you know, we had very cool relationship with. I mean, we, it wasn't even a particularly warm relationship. I mean, if you talk about Australia or uh, Japan uh, or even the European uh, European countries, most of the European countries. I mean, we, we sort of saw them not, not because their democracies weren't strong, but because we saw them somehow as uh, as allies of the United States, and therefore somehow 
puppets of the United States and somehow you know, therefore something less than a full sovereign state. Uh, and uh, that framing was quite common during the Cold War when we looked at those countries. So our relationship with many of these countries, with many of the democracies, um, uh, with almost all of them was not exactly warm. Whereas uh, the, uh, the, the, the warmest relationship that we had were with some of the most brutal uh, and uh, undemocratic and totalitarian and authoritarian regimes around the world. I mean, beginning with China, obviously, in the Middle East, uh, but also uh, the Soviet Union, um, uh, you know, and, and all of our non-aligned friends, none of them could be characterized as democratic. I mean, all of them were, none of them were democracies. Um, so, so, so in a sense, I, would, I think, I don't think that was ever uh, an issue, but, you know, we do, it is a, democracy is important because we are democracy. And so therefore we would like to frame um, our, uh, you know, our uh, interest in terms of that democracy, but you know there is uh, obviously a significant amount of democracy involved in that because it's ultimately our self-interest that matters uh, much more than our uh, you know whether we are democracies or not a democracy. But you know let's let's broaden the um, scope sure. of the question a little further, and and in that context let's talk a little more conceptually about morality and statecraft. Um, so in your opinion, does morality matter at all in foreign policy? In the pursuit of foreign policy and uh, statecraft. Yeah, I think morality is important uh, uh, in how, uh, not so much in terms of how states actually behave, but how states see themselves, right? I mean, so states do not see themselves as immoral or, uh, or amoral uh, even. Uh, states do see themselves as moral, uh, uh, you know, as moral in particular, uh, in particular aspects, uh, but their behavior would not always uh, fit within that uh, within that uh, moral framework. So every state, uh, even all the states that do all kinds of horrible stuff uh, internationally uh, to other states, to other communities, all frame it as some sort of a moral pursuit, uh, and we can go back to. Uh, for example, European colonialism, European expansionism was justified uh, repeatedly as uh, Europe bringing the benefits of civilization to the rest of the world, right? I mean, so uh, the white man's burden, for example, um, uh, one of the most brutal colonial uh, imperial regimes was the Belgian, right, in Congo. It was enormously, uh, enormous amount of brutality that is in fact inflicted on the Congolese. But uh, the Belgians sort of saw themselves as doing good, and they even constructed a, 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 a museum that celebrated their achievements. Right? So I mean, so you know, so the states do not see themselves as doing something bad. I mean, I, 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 there are countless other examples, obviously, but states always want to uh, see themselves as doing good, uh, and therefore. Uh, they would always provide some sort of a moral cover on their own behavior, and that has been like another you know, colonial uh, example. No, I, I get, I get the point about, I get the decision that you're making between objective morality and subjective morality. But be that as it may, there are certain, I mean, whether we like it or not, there are certain global standards of what uh, you know moral behavior entails, be it democracy, human rights, um, you know, um, um, respecting human rights of uh, citizens. Um, not mass murdering you way into power, freedom of speech, etc. Et so that may be subjective. And yet, so they constitute a certain moral 
a character or behavior. But you yes. are saying there is a distinction between self-perception and behavior. Let's talk about yes. uh, let's talk about behavior itself. Do do does does uh, morality matter in the behavior of states as well? No, it doesn't. I mean, it's I mean, so even though states would like to see themselves as moral actors, their behavior often is not. And so, uh, and it is well known in the sense that even, for example, a constructivist scholar like Madhav Vinamo talks about the necessity of hypocrisy. Right? I mean, states have to uh, engage in some level of hypocrisy. And of course, the more power you have, the more hypocrisy will be. Uh, but the point is that uh, all states will engage in some level of hypocrisy. I mean, you, you shouldn't obviously engage in enormous amount of hypocrisy because you know nothing will say will be taken seriously. But states have no choice but to engage in hypocrisy. Right? I mean, so that is not something that is unusual. Uh, and that is, in fact, I would say that's a rule that most states, if they could, they would obviously act, uh, they would behave morally, right? I mean, but uh, most of the time states are faced with choices uh, where uh, there is no moral, uh, where the moral choice there uh, would not be uh, the right choice in terms of national interest, in terms of state interest, right? I mean, support. because of that, uh, they would not have that, you know, they would be given a choice between pursuing their self-interest uh, and pursuing a moral course, they would always pick, or more, more often than not, they would pick the, uh, the uh, self-interest. Right, so in other words, you're saying that it is not as if morality never matters, but morality, yeah, there is, so it sometimes matters, sometimes it doesn't, and that depends on the uh, national interest at stake. Have I got that right? Absolutely, absolutely. So if the national interest coincides with moral uh, objective, for example, you know, U.S. are going into Somalia, right? I mean, the purpose and what the U.S. did was good moral sort of uh, preventing famine in the 1990s. But then that quickly, once that, once a certain cost came to be associated with it, uh, you know, the U.S. decided that it was no longer worth the trouble. So morality, as long as morality, uh, the moral pursuit come without cost, yes, uh, but if the moral moral pursuit involves cost to uh, to the to their interests, then states are not going to uh, do that. And so most of the times uh, it does involve moral uh, it does involve other kinds of costs. And so states will not have the capacity to sort of engage in moral action. So in other words, uh, if I may paraphrase you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So you're saying there is a certain order of moral priorities, um, right? First comes uh, interest and then morals. So does it mean then uh, that morals is a matter of pure convenience? Yeah, I mean, one could say that that's morals are a matter of convenience in the sense that if there is nothing else standing in the way, of course, we will pursue moral concerns. And I mean, you know, we can, you know, it's not just others, we do this all the time. Uh, uh, we were discussing this earlier, I mentioned to you the example of the nuclear test ban, right? I mean, for decades, we said nuclear test ban, nuclear test ban, it goes back to Nehru, uh, whatnot, um, very, very moral, very, very upright position that we took, uh, very strict position that we took. When the nuclear test ban actually came, we suddenly realized that our self-interest was involved, right? I mean, you see, when the comprehensive test ban really came up, uh, we, of course, came up with all kinds of excuses, but that is, of course, the only time also Ambassador to the goals at Europe talked about national security. So, said, you know, we can't do this because it's not in our interest. I mean, so, very rare for India to do that. Uh, they explicitly say that, but that uh, tells you something about where uh, uh, the relationship between morality and self-interest. Because 
for all the decades when the dust ban treaty was not uh, something that is going likely to happen, we kept saying dust ban treaty, dust ban treaty, dust ban treaty. Right? I mean, once that came, once that actually was on the cusp of happening, uh, on the cusp of being accomplished, we suddenly looked at what that would mean for our own nuclear weapons program and decided that's not enough. Right? I mean, so uh, so it is a matter of convenience. If it is, right. if it is no cost, yeah, right. we will do it. Right. You know, let's let's extend that logic a little further. Um, and and uh, if if morality, um, as you say, has no place in statecraft, at least you know if, when when states' national interest is at stake, is it okay therefore to use, for example, terrorism as a tool of statecraft uh, or not? I mean, uh, is it right or wrong? I'm not getting into whether it's right or wrong, but states do it all the time. Again, uh, we have done it. I want a judgment from you, uh, a judgment call. Uh, how do you say it? Is that reprehensible, morally reprehensible, or is that all right? If there is, a, I mean, if states will do what states will do, I mean, they, let me, my own sense is that if it has to be done, it has to be done. There is nothing, there is, you can't really be, um, you can't really um, uh, say that you will not do something simply because it's not, uh, it is, you know, it's, it's as you said, reprehensible. Uh, I mean, again, there are variations of terrorism, what sort of terrorism am I talking about? Um, so we have supported various groups that can be characterized as terrorist groups, for example, you know, and Tamil, various Tamil groups come to mind immediately, uh, you know, call, call them, you know, insurgents or terrorists, but LTT definitely uh, was a terrorist group. Uh, which you know, which at various points of time we had supported. So, um, so it's not um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, uh, is that kind of action reprehensible? Uh, in some senses, it is because you are engaging in you are using agents to um, randomly kill people. I mean, that is not something that is morally uh, that doesn't fit in any sort of moral uh, universe. But states do that, and you know. I think sometimes we don't have a choice but to do that. Um, would that mean that uh, you should uh, you should uh, you know uh, buy planes? You should support a group that is engaging in nuclear terrorism or chemical uh, using chemical weapons or something like that? I wouldn't want to. I mean, I you know, I, uh, my personal sentiment would be against it. But you know, I I don't think that is how states see. So, in other words, uh, the purest form of national interest could potentially justify state-sponsored terrorism? It does the sense that, uh, it, you know, I, I don't know whether it does all kinds of, it, uh, that doesn't provide a justification for every kind of action, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like you can justify anything under national interest. Sometimes the cost of those kinds of actions are greater than whatever else you might lose uh, when I, by not pursuing that, right? So, for example, if you engage in um, engage with a terrorist group uh, that engages in chemical chemical uh, warfare, uh, the cost you know there are costs to that also, and uh, there will be they, it will rebound on you. There will be a blowback for those kinds of uh, actions, and that uh, the, the, those costs will probably be higher than uh, whatever else you are giving up by supporting that. Uh, so you know, I would say that. Uh, uh, the cost of immoral action also has to be has to be calculated, uh, or immoral action also has to be calculated. And so, a lot of time, states would not engage in that kind of action precisely because 
the costs of those kinds of immoral or amoral actions uh, would be too high, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, so the US, uh, for example, um, has stopped with various kinds of uh, actions uh, that the CIA used to engage in uh, after the 1970s, because partly because these things come out, then there is a blowback, there's, a, there's all kinds of uh, uh, you know, difficulties, uh, and uh, it undermines your own national interest. So uh, states are also prudent and send, you know, are careful in terms of how they do even those kinds of actions. So this is, it is not like saying, okay, I want to, uh, you know, I, I, this particular uh, leader is a problem, therefore I'm going to send a terrorist group and blow up, blow up um, you know, blow up his convoy or, or her convoy. Um, we saw that in Lebanon and that came with enormous cost to both uh, Libya, uh, sorry, not Libya, but Iran and Syria, right? Because uh, uh, because that once you start doing engaging in those kinds of actions, there are international repercussions. So that is self-defeating, right? I mean, and so I wouldn't say that any kind of action is justifiable because there are also costs associated with those kinds of people. Provided, provided, provided the state has taken on board those costs and say, all right, it is it's still in so our interest to do it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, you yeah, have, I mean, I, it, right. You've written a lot about uh, Pakistan terrorism, for example, um, in India, in, in Jammu and Kashmir, in particular. So your objection yeah. to Pakistan terrorism, let's say, is not moral. Your your uh, objection to Pakistan terrorism against India is uh, is an argument from national interest. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that you know, I perfectly understand why Pakistan would engage in terrorism as a state, as a much weaker state. Uh, Pakistan would engage in asymmetrical uh, tactics, and that is one of those asymmetrical tactics. Terrorism is one of those asymmetrical tactics. I can perfectly understand Pakistan's rationale, just as I can you know, perfectly understand why Pakistan would build nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. I mean, so a lot of Pakistani behavior has been understandable. I don't think I've ever criticized Pakistani behavior per se. I've criticized Indian response to Pakistan. Right? Indian behavior is, for me, uh, quite inexplicable and quite difficult to understand. I don't have a problem understanding Pakistani behavior first, right? I mean, I, 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 I doubt that I've ever written that what, what Pakistan is doing is unjustified, right? I mean, they can engage in that asymmetrical action precisely because they are the weaker power. But as a stronger power, India has various options that India has not exercised, right? And so India can escalate, for example. And so I've repeatedly argued that India should escalate to uh, Pakistan's use of terrorism. So while I understand that from a purely rational uh, perspective uh, of uh, Pakistan, you know, Pakistan as an asymmetric uh, power, uh, what I don't understand is why India does not respond to that. Right? So that part is, all of my criticism has been about Indian response, not about Pakistani behavior. Right? Most of my, uh, I doubt that I've ever said that Pakistan shouldn't do that. I mean, there is one way in which I think Pakistani uh, behavior is self-defeating. That is the, what I mentioned earlier, that there are costs associated with these kinds of actions. And so being known as a center of terrorism and so on and so forth uh, becomes, you know, that th those costs, I think, uh, are not, uh, are not uh, ultimately have uh, created a problem for Pakistan. But also the other way, other problem that uh, in terms of a purely rational uh, approach, uh, you know, uh, I, would, I would, for anybody who's interested, I would recommend uh, Paul Kapoor's book on Jihad, the strategy, uh, was a fascinating book and exactly looking at that, which is that, you know, the, Pakistan hasn't really achieved much, right? I mean, so tactics and strategies, you have to sort of look at what you achieve 
uh, India, uh, even during the most worst periods of Pakistan's sponsored terrorism against India, India continued to grow. The gap between India and Pakistan widened. And what was achieved uh, in terms of their strategy? I mean, so it seems to be at best some kind of psychic satisfaction in right? I mean, that is not really sufficient. So in that respect, I would criticize. Right. Let me let me come from a different perspective. Are there organizations or individuals in the external environment that states should try and not engage, um, engage given their morally reprehensible character or behavior? Uh, let, me I, you, let me give an example. Yeah. In the case of Lashkar uh, Taiba or Jaysh Mohammed, they have killed scores of Indian citizens in the past. Should India, hypothetically speaking, engage them in a ceasefire deal, should there be an opportunity? Or would you say that we don't want to have any engagement with Lashkar Taiba? No, I mean, I, I don't think that you can say that you shouldn't have any uh, agreements or deals with anybody. I mean, I think you can. I mean, if, you, if there is uh, a uh, a deal that is uh, useful for us I mean, in terms of them uh, ceasing their activities and you know whatever else the terms of that agreement are if the if the terms are sweet enough why not absolutely i don't see any any group as uh, in that sense as out of the uh, you know out of bounds as far as uh, as far as having a dialogue with or as far as uh, coming to an agreement with uh, as long as an agreement is is uh, beneficial to India that is so that always has to be the basis not there is no blanket ban I think uh, for any of these groups any group. in other words I mean, uh, yeah please go ahead yeah if, if that would be distinct from my own view of those groups like uh, Taliban or the like or whatever else but I you know I would still not say that that is necessarily should mean that we shouldn't talk to them or whatever in other words as, as a realist you would not um, um, complicate your um, strategic reasoning with your personal morality. Absolutely. Be it a terror organization or be it a normal state or a state uh, a state sponsor of terrorism, another state should, let's say, for example, in our case, India should deal with them in the same amoral manner. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> our foreign minister was the first one to greet uh, uh, the president of uh, Iran, Raisi. Right, the man has all sorts of uh, human rights uh, case against him, uh, you know, widely and credibly accused of all sorts of human, uh, you know, uh, human rights violations. Uh, it's Iran itself. Uh, we talk about civilization rights and whatnot, but Iran is not exactly. Uh, we haven't ever talked about Hezbollah or Hamas as terrorist groups, despite the fact that they're engaged in terrorism. So yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we. Uh, the same applies to groups. The same applies to states. Is there, do you do you at all uh, make a distinction in your analysis uh, between, say, terror organizations, these freelancers who sort of run around uh, doing what they do, and state sponsorship of terrorism slash you know subconventional activity, whatever you might want to call it? Do you make a distinction at all? Not really. I don't think there is much of a distinction. I mean, other than the fact that states are, of course, more capable, they are more durable, and there are various other variations between states and terrorist groups. But uh, as actors, they are all different types of actors. I mean, just as you would not sort of, you would, you would, you know, you would have, uh, you would engage with other actors like multilateral organizations or private corporations and so on and so forth. So you still terrorists are yet another actors. I mean, I don't, I don't, yet another set of actors. Uh, you know, it's, it's a question of what 
you need or what how that benefits you. I mean, that is the starting point uh, rather than looking at the character of a state or the character of a group or the you know the or what the character of a corporation or whatever else i mean so that is not that you don't start there i mean you don't start with the character you start with your purpose uh, what it is what your objectives are and what your purpose is and then from there then you go on to sort of look at what they can do for you and you know ultimately character may come in somewhere there but that is not where you start Right. Um, so let's take the uh, example of Taliban. There's a lot of conversation going on today uh, on, on Twitter or on TV channels about the desirability sure. of engaging a morally reprehensible entity like the Taliban. They violate human rights. They, uh, you know, uh, violate uh, the rights of women and uh, children, you know, and, and minorities in general. And therefore, a lot of people seem to make seem to be making the argument in India today that uh, India should not engage them because India is a you know, morally upright country, it's a democratic country, we have our morals and traditions, etc. Where do you stand on that question? Yeah, I mean, I have no problems. That is, I mean, I have objections to dealing with the Taliban, but that has nothing to do with the morality of uh, the Taliban or, or lack of it. You know, that is not the issue. Uh, I don't think that uh, the Taliban will ever be independent of the Pakistan state. I mean, in the sense that they're independent of Pakistan agencies and so on. So I don't think the idea that you could talk and get the Taliban to support you or, you know, support us or pursue uh, help us pursue our interests uh, will work. I mean, the, so that is, it's purely on those pragmatic grounds that I would say, uh, you forget about the Taliban because that's not going to happen. And we have been down this road many, many times before, right? I mean, since the 90s, we've been down this path. Um, and it's never, it never worked. Uh, and I find it very difficult to believe that it will work in the future, right? And for the simple, for many reasons. I mean, uh, the fact that most uh, the, the proxim proximity um, uh, uh, between, uh, between you know the, the, the fact that they are neighbors, we don't have direct access to them, uh, makes it very difficult for us to give them anything. I get, I what get, are you going to offer? What I are you going to offer, Taliban? I get your point, but um, let's say you have credible reason to believe that there are factions within the Taliban who are. Okay. You know, um, who are also not willing to put all their eggs in the Pakistani basket and they're looking at other opportunities. So if you have credible reason to believe that engaging them would potentially benefit you strategically, you'd go ahead and do that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if you have credible reasons to believe that they would uh, come over to, uh, uh, come over to, you know, uh, help India, uh, uh, there is no reason why you should talk to them. I mean, that... The problem is that, uh, you know, we are talking, we are having fairly good uh, relations despite all the things that are going on in the dark, uh, you know, uh, with the uh, regime in China that is by all accounts genocidal. We have a very close relationship with uh, Russia and Putin despite the fact that he sends agents around the world killing his opponents with uh, poison and so on and so forth, right? I mean, so. I mean, you know, they, they, we are not we are not making those kinds of moral judgments with China or Russia. I don't see or Iran for that matter. I mean, so I don't see any reason why we should make those kinds of moral judgments with Taliban if they can provide us something, right? I mean, I doubt that what they can provide us. Uh, I doubt that any of the groups there can provide us anything pretty much. Uh, and I don't think it will be that you know there is a group a faction within it, uh, and they start talking to us. I mean, I think that faction will be very short lived. I mean. Uh, even the part we can prevent parts and sensitivities on that issue. So I am I am very, very skeptical of 
the idea of that particular idea of the idea that uh, that the Taliban can help us pursue some interest in of actions or the Taliban as a whole will help us pursue some interest in Afghanistan. Uh, right. Got it. Um, so say let's say tomorrow um, somebody, the Human Rights Watch or somebody in Europe accuses India of, of violating human rights in Jammu and Kashmir, you wouldn't be morally outraged. Um, Right. No, that, I mean, those are two different things, right? I mean, the, uh, we're talking about domestic politics. We are talking about our own society as opposed no, to no, 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 no. No, I, state's I, behavior. External no, 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 I, you misunderstood my question. Uh, what yeah. I'm asking is that someone externally tomorrow accuses India of violating human rights within India's domestic sphere. You wouldn't be outraged by that accusation, would you be? No, I wouldn't be outraged by that accusation because I mean, you know, I you know, I would obviously look at whether those, those accusations are valid or not. But that's you know, let's assume for the sake of uh, argument that such accusations. I mean, those accusations, accusations always made. Um, I am always I've always been skeptical of the kind of uh, sort of response that they've had uh, to these kinds of accusations. I think uh, that's why I said, uh, you know, that, that's a, that is, that is, that is, that is the accusations about our domestic behavior, right? I mean, and so that is entirely distinct from our foreign behavior. I, 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 I do understand. I do understand. But just like you might say that the Iranian president is violating human rights in Iran yeah. or in China, they, they could turn around and say, you're, you're doing pretty much the same thing or less or in whatever degree it may be you wouldn't be morally outraged by that accusation. I mean, you know, it's a different matter. You wouldn't be morally outraged by what is happening in a country or that's a different matter. No, but if that accusation, I mean, there is a, I, I uh, would want obviously India uh, and Indian society and Indian polity to be much better than Iran or China or Russia or whatever else. And so if there are accusations of those kind of, of that nature, then I would take it seriously because that is different from, because that's an accusation about the state of our society. Right. I mean, that is uh, that is that is something that has to be taken seriously. That is not something that can be dismissed. I mean, there's a difference between uh, us uh, engaging with the with the China or Russia or Iran and us behaving the way we behave domestically. I mean, those. Okay. Or let's let me let me let me put it this way. Let's say Pakistan accusing India of human rights violations. Uh, even that, I would say, we need to take seriously because those are uh, accusations about uh the way our state behaves within our society right i mean that may be and we can dismiss it in terms of well the, the 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 veracity of that and so that should definitely be seriously considered but the dismissal has to be on the basis of that not that pakistan said it or human rights watch said it or whatever else right I mean, because that is a, a fundamentally different issue when right. our state is accused of its behavior domestically as opposed to its behavior externally so, so when does the state interest versus morality arguments start applying internally or domestically, or do they? I, no, do they no, no. If state that is, that is yeah. if, right. So, if state is an immoral entity, why would it apply only externally and not internally? Is it possible? No, to I mean that clear. I didn't. At all? I didn't say the state was a moral entity, right? I said state's behavior internationally in the, in the society of states has to be that doesn't mean the state itself is uh immoral state or immoral, right? so state so, behavior you say state behavior can be immoral internationally but state behavior 
there cannot be a moral domestically. Can you make absolutely. a clear connection yeah. between these two? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it can because because uh, we give uh, our consent to the state uh, to, to have certain authority, uh, legitimacy, whatever. It is our power that we, in a sense, uh, concede to the state uh, for uh, maintaining an ordered society. Right? And therefore, we have the right. The state is not it's not an it's not an empire it's not a king uh, it's not uh, you know it's not given uh, by divine uh, right whatever it is our government and so we have a right to ask questions of our government and how that government behaves. the state could potentially uh, be a kingdom the state could potentially be a monarchy a, a state that's a kingdom well you, the, the citizens of that state will not have the kind of rights that um, that uh, you know where they would be able to question the king, right? Or if all the orders they will have to rebel. I mean, we are talking about a democracy uh, in India. So they, within a democracy, the the rights are the, the relationship between the state and society is different uh, as compared to a, you know as compared to a totalitarian or an authoritarian state or a, or a feudal state and so on and so forth. So that is. Those two things, those things are not compared. Here is my um, uh, concern. Uh, is it possible, is it feasible to make a clear cut distinction between domestic space where moral action is warranted and external space where moral action is contingent upon national interest? Is politics that uncomplicated and simple that some, some, some parts of the state can engage in say stressologic terrorism state sponsored terrorism immoral action immoral action call it what you want and the same state in a slightly different capacity dealing with the domestic space ends up becoming completely moral or will be moral is that expectation a bit is that expectation not a bit too much i don't think so because most of all democracies and we are talking only about democracies because obviously Non-democracies are not moral even in their domestic behavior, so that is you know that they are not even they are not even in that uh, you know the consideration. But uh, democracies are expected. To, it's not a question of morality. I mean, because if, for example, even if you you could question the morality of all sorts of policies domestically, right? I mean, developmental choices that you make. I mean, you know, you build dams and that uh, you know that forces people out of their homes. Is that moral? So, you know, it's. it's or you build, or you do something else. You build highways, or or you make tax uh, taxation choices uh, uh, between direct tax and indirect tax. I mean, all of these involve one could make accusations about uh, about morality. But I would say that that is not the um, you know that it is not a question of morality uh, domestically. It's somewhat different. Uh, when when you talk about internationally in a society of states where there is nobody to govern and where they, you know, familiar with these terms, but uh, where, which is a self-help system where every state is you know, basically left to itself. There is no global government. So every state has to fend for itself. And therefore, some of these tactics and tools become necessary occasionally. I mean, you know, uh, it's not like every state is always engaged in immoral behavior, but um, democracy is definitely not. And so you would, you would have to uh, experience it sometimes uh, requires that you engage in some kinds of behavior. Uh, in the in the international uh, realm, um, in, the, in the, the society of states, but domestically, uh, that is not uh, you know it is not your uh, you are not expecting states to do that. I mean, not all states. I mean, democracies uh, you are not expecting. That. So that is 
those two things are i mean i wouldn't even so the domestic part i wouldn't even say moral behavior you states are supposed to um, exercise authority constrained by the laws and constitutions and things like that right i mean so as long as they exercise authority within that within those constraints and that can be challenged obviously in courts of law and things like that and so that it is not a question of morality again because morality gets into all sorts of other problems uh, because all policy choice involves some sort of moral uh, issues but uh, whether states act within uh, within the bounds of the constitution and the laws of things of that kind which we decided right i mean which as a society we decided that these are the these have to be the rules and uh, rules and laws right so that is a question right question to ask of uh, domestic behavior not no, morality well i mean, you know states are i mean societies are driven by moral principles moral standards they aspire for several you know more righteous behavior so morality is part of the um, conversation in any case that's something that we can't rule out the you know i'll, I'll tell you where my where my where my problem is um, you know the clear cut distinction that you're making between domestic space where moral action is warranted and the external space where moral action is contingent upon national interest seems to yeah. be an ideal sort of a situation seems to be um, a, an ideal a sort of clean break as it were which ideal not, type, yeah which, which yeah which may not necessarily uh, function in real life and that's that's a problem I mean, let's take the example of the recent controversy surrounding the uh, pegasus software right i mean um all right israelis sell that state software to um, states only for what for mostly to keep a tab on terrorists and uh, adversaries and enemies that this and the other but you know the um, the opposition in india is accusing the government of um, tapping the phones of its own citizens um so are, are we i mean strictly speaking therefore from a uh quote unquote moral behavior point of view that's not what you're seeing so i know you uh, the the uh, the counter that counter that could potentially be uh, obviously shouldn't behave like that but the reality is that if you're used to behaving in a particular way in a, in a site you know in a different site you can't expect the same uh leviathan to behave in a different way or can you yeah, so that that's a danger i mean that's definitely a danger and so the answer to that is what you said which is that if you engage in that kind of behavior that's illegal behavior right i mean so that's what i said within the bounds of the constitution and the rules and the laws and things like that is how you're supposed to behave but that is always a danger so whenever you whenever a state engages in that kind of action domestically obviously that is it's going beyond uh the legal norms legal uh, you know the, the constitution the rules what not and they can be taken to court and you know uh, in, you know uh, they should be taken to court and they should be sort of uh, they should be uh, uh, they should be forced to sort of uh, account for those that kind of behavior unlike in the international law but you are right about this uh, about the sea page as it were uh, from the kind of behavior that you engage in internationally to the kind of behavior that you engage in domestically right if you engage in some kinds of behavior internationally that has effects on domestic society you may engage in that kind of behavior domestically also that is a danger in all democracies right but that's been the case throughout history with all democracies um and uh, you know the, the one reason why uh the us makes uh, some uh, you know, very clear distinctions about where the cia is supposed to operate right where even our a number of our Our parliamentarians have repeatedly said that uh, our intelligence agency should come under uh, under legislation, under you know, should be, there should be sort of a framework, a legal framework for their operations and so on and so forth. So there is that that seepage is always a problem. Uh, that's what we mean by militarization, right? I mean, for example, the fact that uh, you engage in intense competition with other countries that tends to militarize a society because your international behavior 
has a domestic effect, a kind of a, you know, a, another kind of blowback effect on a domestic society. We always have to be on guard against that. But that danger is not something that can be ruled out. And you're right to point out that danger. But that is still, a, you know, it is still uh, it's a, a danger that one needs to contain. Um, it is not something that uh, the, the, the fact that that's a kind of blowback happens in democracies is not to say that there is no distinction. The, the, the fact that we resist that itself points to that distinction. Right? I mean, I do the same thing. Uh, in the U.S., with all the Patriot Act and things like that, and so all sorts of all sorts of uh, behavior, uh, when in great danger, you uh, uh, you you engage in behavior internationally that does have uh, all kinds of domestic blowback. But that is not, you know, that uh, if it, if you are a good democracy, if you are a strong liberal democracy, then you will find that those kinds of actions domestically would be resisted, right? I mean, and it would be resisted, and the system would correct itself to make sure that those kinds of uh, those are always excesses, right? I mean, those are always um, uh, things that were uh, unintended uh, and that would always also always be controlled. I do understand the distinction that you make between um, the domestic space and the external space. I mean, one is governed by rules, regulation, arbitration, laws, uh, except that the other is not. Um, so um, let's say there is today an emergence of a uh, global um, you know legal framework in certain uh, spheres of life um, you know be it loss of war the the arrival of icc icj icj the outlawing of certain kinds of weapon systems etc etc so you are you're looking at a slow steady emergence of a global standardization of how states should behave etc so if, if, if indeed there is an emergence of this so, uh, um, so, so, so steady order as it were, at what point do these global morals or standards um, apply to states? Do they apply? Should they apply at all? No, I don't think that it will be possible to uh, come up with, you know, uh, there are come up with global rules that apply because it's very, very difficult to negotiate those global rules as to what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. And we see a lot of that happening now, uh, whether it's internet rules or whatever else. Uh, how are we going to, who frames this? Who's, how do we come up with these global rules? I mean, there has to be 200 states together, they're not going to decide on anything. So it's going to be very, very difficult, I would think, that uh, to come up with those kinds of rules. So the rules that we have are very thin at the you know at best. I mean, even the rules about genocide, uh, states don't follow it, and there is nothing that the international community can do about it. I mean, we are talking about the most minimal uh, level of uh, of individual rights, of the right to life, uh, and even that uh, is being violated and uh, without much response from the international community. So I would be extremely skeptical that we'll be able to frame anything. Uh, broader than those kinds of rules. Uh, those kinds of rules can be framed only in the context of some sort of a hegemonic system where there is a, you know, where there is a global power that is dominant power, whether it is the US or China in the future or whatever, uh, then that global hegemon can sort of frame rules for everybody and say, okay, everybody has to behave according to these rules. And you know, that might work, but uh, outside of that, the idea that 
200 odd states can sit together and decide what is appropriate for all states. I, you know, I find it extremely difficult. So, when you say ICJ or when you say uh, rules against certain, uh, you know, some norms, which norms? I mean, we, even landmines, for example, right? indiscriminate use of landmines, or none of these are uh, have been accepted by the strong states. Um, so they remain. Um, uh, you know, they are not really fully formed laws that other states have, or that all states have accepted for, for definitely for the domestic for the domestic in terms of the domestic rules. Take a look at weapons, for example. I mean, you know, uh, you, you, have a, you have an example right there. You're right. I mean, in the, in the case of um, uh, landmines, there is no even India has no sign on it. But you have chemical weapons, for example, or um, certain conventional weapons. I mean, there is an emerging sort of trend towards codifying some of these. I mean, uh, say compared to 200 years ago. Um, so we are not probably in that. I mean, what I'm trying to basically say is that I understand the argument of self-help and anarchy as it were. But is it the same as, say, it was 100 years ago, 150 years ago, as it is today? That's, that's no, I, Yeah, I think there are some rules uh, uh, that may have evolved, such as rules of sovereignty, for example, right? I mean, the, the, the uh, right not to be ruled or governed by others um, uh, but all of that was accompanied by what might be characterized as a democratization of violence where it made which made it more difficult for foreign powers to occupy uh, other countries and so on so even that is not entirely uh, the consequence of uh, you know of any kind of a uh, common value this is that is kind of a norm that evolved over a period of time but outside of that, really speaking, outside of the rules of sovereignty, what really is there? I mean, chemical weapons, one could make a very good argument that chemical weapons, see, there hasn't been any recent progress. I mean, it's, chemical weapons have been a concern since the First World War, uh, but uh, not much progress except for the CWC, okay, you know, formally was accepted. Uh, but again, during the early days of unipolarity, when the US was able to knock heads together to make sure that other states sort of do uh, go down that path. Right. I mean, so um, that itself was a function of uh, of uh, hegemonic power, and we see that being violated now, whether in Syria or other places, without any punishment, without 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 anybody doing anything about it. Right. I mean, so really speaking, what are these? Rules? I mean, there aren't very many rules that we can think about that we can think about, uh, which the international community, either in a normative sense uh, or in a formal legal sense as framed uh, that is accepted uh, and you know and applied domestically chemical weapons other is other factor in chemical weapons is of course the effectiveness question is also important to prepare one reason why most countries have of course accepted chemical weapons is that it's not particularly effective i mean it, it's not really i mean it is i mean i wouldn't say it's not effective at all it's effective against civilians but it, as a weapon of war against other forces it is not particularly effective right I mean, so it becomes somewhat Easier, it became somewhat easier for a lot of countries to give that up, uh, especially if you had other sort of weapons. So, so in a sense that 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 uh, I think there is a uh, there is a reason why uh, some of these things came about, uh, like chemical weapons bans or chemical weapons convention. Uh, but uh, part of it had to do with national self-interest, and but a lot of it is also a question of who actually follows them. And there's nobody really following them. Right. Nobody enforcing them. You spoke about the democratization of war and uh, sovereignty, um, and, and, and this democratization of war somehow has prevented 
um, states from engaging engaging in wars and occupation of the kind that used to happen earlier on. Now, on the question of sovereignty, um, now how do you explain um, the willingness of some states to give up their sovereignty up to a point today? Um, I have I have in mind the European Union, of course. I'm not saying that the argument is not that they have entirely given up on their sovereign claims, but there is a willingness to give some uh, hitherto sovereign functions to a um, you know supranational uh, entity, as it were. Um, so is that is that the way in which the uh, international system is developed, moving towards? Given that that is only a, a say you know 50, 60 year old um, um, sort of sort, sort, sort of phenomenon, um, or do you think that is an aberration? I mean, as of now, clearly that would appear to be an aberration because we haven't seen uh, any sort of uh, transfer of sovereignty or even some notion of shared sovereignty uh, in other regions, right? Even in ASEAN, it's a completely different sort of set of, um, set of uh, uh, manner in which that uh, ASEAN came about and the manner in which states interact within ASEAN is very, very different. And, you know, there's a long debate between uh, scholars of ASEAN and scholars of the European Union and uh, about, uh, about the purpose of the integration, about the man manner of the integration, so on and so forth. So that's a, that's a whole debate about, about that. So outside of Europe, you really don't have that. And even in Europe, uh, I think one of the key issues, um, I mean, two key issues. Uh, one is the fact that they face a common threat uh, in uh, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, and that sort of made them a single uh, you know, that sort of brought them together because they perceived a common threat, I mean, whatever the nature of the threat I'm not getting into, but they perceived a common threat which forced them to unite. The second part of it is that their security itself was largely taken care of by the United States, right? I mean, in the sense that they didn't have to worry about each other. France and Germany did not have to worry about each other. Germany and Britain did not have to worry about each other because, you know, all, all of them was the United States. And so, uh, and that's a peculiar situation that doesn't exist anywhere else, right? I mean, maybe that developed in Europe, in Asia, or a period of time. But this was this was a peculiar situation where the United States was providing that when they were say security community. It's not a community really; it is the United States that is providing security. And so, what normally states had to do, which is protect themselves, uh, did not for a period of time. Uh, for a period of time, did not states did not have to do in Europe, and therefore they could. They didn't have to worry about each other as much, um, and and they still do worry. I mean, at the end of the when Germany was being reunited, the French were extremely concerned. Right? I mean, go back and look at the look at the um, look at the internal uh, arguments and uh, debates between the French within the French within France and within within France and U.S. and Germany and so on. There was a lot of concern in uh, France about German reunification. I mean, there's not old saying about keeping uh, Germany divided and sort of like German so much that you want two of them. So, you know, so that sort of, uh, that, uh, so, so there was, there were peculiarities in the European, European situation that allowed some of that to happen. And, you know, uh, uh, we will have to wait and see whether that evolves in other parts of the world. I'm skeptical that that same set of circumstances will, uh, you know, will uh, be available in other parts. Uh, Europe, over a period of time, of course, has developed that habit of seeing each other as a community, right? I mean, and so um, that normative aspect, I'm not entirely discounting. Uh, that is definitely an important facet, which I don't think previously differentiated. Because over a period of time, habits can form, and so it would be difficult at this time to sort of 
make the Germans think of the French as enemies, or make the British think of the French as enemies, things like that. So I think that that uh, there has been a cultural turn there uh, to some extent. I mean, how solid is it? How deep is it? Let us wait and see. But I'm very, very I am extremely uh, skeptical that that same set of circumstances, a common enemy, uh, a hegemon that provides security, uh, history, all of that, uh, common culture, all of that uh, will uh, be found in another region. So it's not what we talk about, it's not universal time. It is, it is a peculiarity of one part of one corner, corner of the world. And I'm not sure that can be replicated elsewhere. Sure. Um... I mean, obviously, one could make the argument that it has to start somewhere. It has started somewhere. That's another way of looking at it. But be that, be that as it may, you know, I just want to quickly get your reaction. I know that we've gone on for some time. But what, what, in your opinion, explains the logic behind uh, the state's moral action as and when they engage in moral action? Is that is that is that out of pure self-interest? You know, it is. It can be pure self-interest, but it can also be that it doesn't conflict with any pure self-interest. Right. I mean, so you can engage in moral action when it doesn't conflict with others that we do. Right. I mean, so uh, you know, you 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 uh, uh, like I said, I mean, when, when uh, there was no prospect of a test ban, we were of course all for test ban. Um, when there is no prospect of a, sorry, I'm sorry for using, too sorry to be using all the examples from nuclear politics, but uh, when there is no prospect for an FMCT, we will be all for an FMCT. Uh, no prospect for nuclear disarmament, we'll be all for nuclear disarmament. So, you know, so, you know, so it's, it's, it, when it doesn't conflict with any of yourself, but you know, change will be normal. I mean, there is no problem there. Uh, or else it has to, there has to be a conjunction between your moral interest and your self interest, either of those two. But if your self interest conflicts with your moral interest, or if it, that pursuit of that moral, uh, that moral pursuit becomes expensive, then you're unlikely to. You know, on the question of morality, um, certain realists seem to be suggesting a middle path. Uh, E.H. Carr, for instance, um, or even others, they they, they won against uh, naive dreaming in international politics on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, also won against un unrestrained uh, cynicism. Um, as, 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 as a realist, um, do you think this middle path is the right way to look at, look at the international system? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm not saying that you should be completely cynical. But problem, I'm not saying that we should not have not look at anything with uh, or the states don't look at anything with a moral uh, with a moral eye. States, of course, look at things with a moral eye. The problem is, of course, is that you know, again, to quote Martha Benamor, not quote Martha Benamor, but to sort of refer to Martha Benamor. States all no don't always have that choice. I mean, so many questions that states face in terms of uh, the choices that they have. Uh, are not easy choices, and therefore the moral. Even if you, uh, even if you are a moral state in some respects, even if you want to pursue good uh, ends and via good uh, through good means, uh, it's not always possible. So you should always, of course, have that as your uh, objective. Uh, uh, you know, but uh, for many of the reasons that you mentioned, including the. Uh, Seep into domestic politics and so on and so forth, which you don't want, which you want to keep to the minimum. Uh, but the choices that states face uh, is not always not always allow them to pursue that. So I don't object to looking at questions from a moral point of view, but I would object to uh, letting that dictate your choices. Right? So 
you should start obviously looking at the looking at the Taliban. Okay, that those are that that is a group that you know considering their treatment of women and everything that they do, it's not something that I would want to uh, engage with. But then the same can be said about the Kunta in Myanmar, right? I mean, but we hold our noses and we do what we have to, right? I mean, and so that is not what we would like to do. And I think that keeping that, that is where the moral judgment comes in. I think that we should have that moral judgment, but ultimately do what is necessary to be done uh, if there are no other choices, if the moral choices themselves are not available. Professor Rajagopalan, excellent insights. Always wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.